Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. You look for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is waste, and you run every man unto his own house. Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I call for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you tonight that you have brought us each one here safely in this windy and stormy evening. And uh, Lord, we're so grateful tonight for your goodness and your grace in doing so. And Father, we pray that you'd bless us now as we meet in the Savior's name, as we gather around the Word of God. We pray, Father, that it would become real to us, Lord, that it would be uh, just like that glass of which James speaks that we look into and, uh, Lord, we see something uh, of ourselves reflected back. And so, Lord, this prophet calls upon us to consider our ways, to think about our priorities, uh, to look deep into our hearts and to really, uh, really assess our walk with you. And, uh, Father, I just pray you'd bless us tonight. Uh, we would just sense thy Holy Spirit's leading and help. We ask also, too, Lord, as we come to our time of prayer, that you'd meet with us there. And, uh, Lord, that we could indeed be uh, ministers of intercession tonight, bringing before your throne of grace uh, those tonight who are burdened, those who are struggling, those who are yet unsaved. And, Lord, we just pray that our prayers might be heard. So we ask, Lord, these things in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen. Now, I have to tell you, probably of all the minor prophets, this is my favorite minor prophet. I love the book of Haggai. I was almost tempted to take four weeks on it. I love it so much. Uh, but I'm going to just do it in one night and give you a synopsis. Hopefully I'll do it in one night. Maybe two nights. We'll see how it goes. But uh, I'm planning on one night. And uh, it's just a wonderful, challenging book. It's a very relevant book. It's a very real book. And uh, we don't know very much about Haggai. We're not uh, told a whole lot about his background. Other than that he ministered uh, to the Jews in that period after they had returned from Babylon, after they had come back from what was now known as Persia and had re-inhabited Jerusalem and begun to build the temple under the oversight of Ezra and Zerubbabel, who was the governor of Jerusalem at the time. The book seems to indicate that Haggai 
had been there when the temple fell, that he had been taken presumably into exile, and he remembered back to those days. And so that would suggest to us he has to be more than 70 years of age because the exile lasts 70 years. Uh, but he's not one of those old men, you think about him, and uh, he's not one of those old men who's always hankering back to the past, you know, back to the good old days. Uh, this is a man who has an eye to the future. He only, not only does he have an eye to the future of his nation, but he has an eye to the future even of the world itself. And uh, he gives us some interesting insights into the role of the Messiah when he comes uh, in his kingdom. Now, the work of the building of the temple, by the time Haggai was writing, that work had been ongoing for about 16 years. But what happened was that as they began building the temple, the enemies of Judah opposed the building of the temple. They appealed to the Persian king, Artaxerxes, and he withdrew, planning permission, as it were, to continue on with the work. And so the work stopped for a little bit. Uh, but then, upon reflection and upon appeal, Artaxerxes changed his mind, and he said that they could continue building the temple. But when they were given the green light to continue building the temple, they failed to do so. They had become distracted in the interim, and they were taken up with other things in their lives. And so essentially what you had was a foundation base that had been laid when they first came back into the land, and then nothing else. For 16 years, nothing else happened, and over that base there grew a carpet of weeds, and all around it was nothing but just dry, uh, arid land. And so that's where Haggai and indeed our next prophet, Zechariah, come in. Uh, Their goal is to motivate the people to take up their tools and to finish the job that they started. And Haggai, in particular, calls upon the people to take a good, hard, long, hard look at themselves, take stock of themselves, take inventory of their lives, and consider their spiritual priorities. And sometimes we all have to do that. Now, this book is very easily outlined for you because all you have to look for is the phrase, came the word of the Lord by Haggai. We read it in verse 3. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet. You look in chapter 2 and verse 1. Then came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai. Uh, Again, if you look uh, further down that chapter to chapter uh, 2 and verse 10, at the tail end it says, came the word of the Lord by Haggai uh, the prophet And again in verse 20, uh, again, the word of the Lord came on to Haggai. So when you see those statements, that's basically how this book is broken down. Uh, And essentially what you have here is four sermons. Haggai brings four different sermons on four different days, and each one is designed to encourage the people, to motivate the people, and to spur them on to complete the building of the temple. Well, here comes sermon number one in chapter one and uh, verses uh, one to 11. And the sermon is very simple. He tells them to consider your ways. Now, look in verse two what the issue was. They were living without purpose. It says, thus speaketh the Lord of hosts saying, this people say, the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. In other words, They were putting off till tomorrow 
what ought to have been done today. They just said it's just not the right time for us. You know, uh, we've got other things to do and, you know, we can attend to that later perhaps, come back to it another day. The time just isn't right. In other words, they were delaying. They were procrastinating. And uh, someone has said that uh, procrastinating, you know, is the thief of time. And so it is. Uh, And we've all been there, haven't we? We've all put things on the long finger and we said, oh, you know what, I'll attend to that tomorrow or the weekend or next week or the month after or next year or something else and you know yourself that it never gets done and so this was the issue here these people were living without purpose as for as respect in respect to the temple and the things of God they were living without priorities look in verse uh, four they, the Lord says to them is it time for you O ye to dwell in your sealed houses and this house lie waste So instead of building the Lord's house, they were putting their time and their energy and what little money they had into their own homes. Here there's a reference to sealed houses. That means paneled houses. And uh, just as in our day, there are certain fashions uh, in home decor. So it was in ancient times. And the fashion of that day was to have panelled homes. That was the sign of that you were going up in the world. Now, these people didn't say they wouldn't build the temple. That's not what they were saying. Uh, They didn't say that they shouldn't build the temple. They weren't saying that either. Uh, But that they couldn't build the temple. It wasn't the right time, you see, because they were busy doing other things. And I don't know of a true Christian who, you know, doesn't value the things of God, who doesn't value the commands of Scripture, who doesn't command, who doesn't value the command of the Great Commission, for example, uh, who doesn't believe that church is important, uh, or doesn't believe in the uh, value of Christian service. We all believe that, but there are lots of Christians who never seem to get around to those things. They never seem to attend to the things of the Lord. And, uh, you know, the witnessing takes a back seat in their lives. The church takes a back seat in their lives. Uh, Christian service, well, you know, maybe another day, maybe when I'm less busy, when I'm less on at work, when we've reared our children, uh, you know, I'm out of college or whatever. We've always got some reason why we can't do those things. And that makes us no different from the people of High Guys Day. So the Lord comes to us and he says, consider your ways. You need to think about your life and what it is you're prioritizing. Haggai says to them, you know, how come you can spend all that time and money on your lovely paneled homes, but you've so little time and money for the house of God? And, and what a question that was. You know, that's got up in the searching question. And, and I wonder, does God not ask that same question uh, of us? You know, isn't it funny how we always have reasons why we cannot do something, why we cannot serve uh, the Lord, why we cannot be baptized, why we could not join the church, why we could not uh, go out witnessing, why we could not pass out leaflets, why we could not help in Sunday school or whatever it is. Uh, We always find uh, some reason, but we all at the same time find time and money uh, for the things that we enjoy, for the things that serve us. So we, we find reasons not to serve the Lord But we always get around that when it comes to things that please us or serve us in some way. Someone put it this way, and I always always like this little little analogy. They they wrote, isn't it strange how a 20-pound note seems like such a large amount when you donate it to church, 
but such a small amount when you go shopping. Isn't it strange how two hours seem so long when you're at church, but how short they seem when you're watching a good movie? Isn't it strange that you can't find a word to say when you're praying, but you have no trouble thinking what to talk about with a friend? Isn't it strange how difficult and boring it is to read one chapter of your Bible, but how easy it is to read 100 pages of a popular novel? Isn't it strange how everyone wants front row tickets to concerts or games, but they do whatever is possible to sit at the back row of the church? (laughs) Case in point. (laughs) Isn't it strange how we need to know about a church event three weeks in advance so we can include it on our agenda, but we can adjust it for all other events at the last minute. Isn't it strange how difficult it is to learn and share a truth about God with others, but how easy it is to learn, share, and extend, and repeat gossip? Isn't it strange how we believe everything that magazines and newspapers say, but we question the words in the Bible. And I think that's what Haggai was getting at. He was saying, look, you people are living with the wrong priorities. And and if we're honest, we are very often doing the same thing ourselves. Then not only that, they were living without profit. Look at verse 6 of chapter 1. He says, you've sown much, you bring in little, you eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but there's none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. You know, they were, they were discovering that when you cheat on God, God withdraws his blessings. That, uh, you know, there's no, there's no means to blessing, to rest, to happiness when we don't put the Lord first in our lives. And, you know, they were experiencing failure at every turn. Their crops were failing. Their money was in decline. Inflation was on the rise. All of that might sound somewhat familiar to us. And it's, and it's rather like the, the fellow who once said this, my take-home pay will not even take me home. <laughs> and I think some of us have been there. My take-home pay won't even take me home. Well, that's certainly how the people were feeling uh, in Judah uh, during Haggai's ministry. And maybe you feel like that. Maybe you feel like in your life, you know, financially, materially, you're always treading water. You're never, you're never getting on top of things that you are, as Haggai puts it, you know, putting your money in a bag withholds. Well, what does the scripture say about that? If that's where you are, then maybe you need to consider your ways. If you want the blessing of the Lord upon your life materially, and I'm not suggesting for one moment here that you should be healthy and wealthy and be living in a beachfront home in Malibu, but I'm saying here that certainly God does bless us when we give ourselves and serve him. Uh, Then they were living without power. That's the fourth point in the first sermon. He obviously wasn't a Baptist preacher. He only had three points. But anyway, uh, they were living without power in verses 7 through 9. It says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. You looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that is waste. And you run every man onto his own house. 
Therefore, the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I call for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, upon the oil, upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands. So they, the reason why all their industry was not meeting their needs was simple. They just did not have the blessing of God, the power of God upon their lives. God just blew away their efforts. Everything they tried, God just puffed it out of, the, out of sight. And uh, God never blesses self-seeking. Look in Jeremiah for a moment, chapter 5. Jeremiah chapter 5. And look at verse 25 of Jeremiah's prophecy. Notice what Jeremiah says to the people of his day. He says, your iniquities have turned away these things. That is the blessing of the Lord. That's the harvest of God. He says, your iniquities have turned away these things. And your sins have withholden good things from you. You know, why, you might ask, am I not getting my prayers answered? Well, if I, if I, if I harbor sin in my heart, uh, the Lord will not hear me. Uh, you know, why are you not getting anything out of your Bible? Well, uh, perhaps you're coming to your Bible with the wrong attitude. Why are you struggling with church life? You know, why do you find it difficult to come out to uh, this meeting or that? You know, where's the blessing, I'm asking you? You know, if, if you're being blessed in church, you're going to come. Uh, why is there no power in our witness? Could it be that God is not blessing us? That we have no power with him simply because, like the people of ancient Judah, we've become so caught up with our own things. Well, that was the first sermon. And I think you'll agree with me, it was quite a searching sermon. Here comes the second sermon in chapter 2 in verses 1 to 9. And he tells them to consider your future. Consider your future. Let's look at verse 1. In the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. And be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord. And work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when ye came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you. Fear ye not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. So notice in verse 1, this prophecy comes on the 21st day of the seventh month. And without getting into the calendar of the feasts of Israel, that's the last day 
of the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, So each day of the Feast of Tabernacles, as part of the celebration, a priest would leave the uh, Temple Mount, he would come down the steps, down to the Pool of Gion, and he would gather a little bit of water, water there, collect some water, he would bring it back up the steps onto the Temple Mount, and he would pour it on the altar in the Temple. But remember now, the Temple has been destroyed. It's gone. It, it went when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it in 586 B.C., so there is no temple. So you've got a picture of the scene. He, this priest is going down to the bottom of the hill to the pool of Gion, and he comes back up and, and to this, he comes back up from the spring and he's pouring the water on where the altar used to be. He's pouring the, the, the uh, water on dry and arid ground. Now, historically, this particular ceremony was to remind the Jewish people how God miraculously provided water for them during their 40 years of wilderness wanderings. So understand that now at this point, on the 21st day of the seventh month, they had begun this building work some 31 days before. If you were to read all of the timings of this book, you could calculate that out. So, so this building project has been going on for 31 days. But it's in the middle of the holiday season, okay? So you have the, the Feast of Trumpets, you have the Day of Atonement, you have the Feast of Tabernacles. Those holidays are all celebrated essentially in the same period. And so of those 31 days, nine of those days have been public holidays, holy days. So really they haven't had a lot of time. Effectively they've had about three weeks to get to work on this building site. Now you and I have seen many a building site and you know full well that from the time the foundation is laid to three weeks down the line, there's usually not a whole lot done, okay? Uh, you, don't, you aren't looking there and thinking, oh, I can see that building coming along. You're at the very early stages of building. So not much has happened uh, at this time. They haven't accomplished uh, very much. And I think it's safe to say that they wouldn't have been very far along. Now, to compound their problems, they have this terrible drought in the land. So there they stood, the people stood on parched land, watching this priest pouring water into the sizzling earth of a temple that once stood there that they were trying to rebuild that wasn't even half rebuilt. It was a pitiful, pitiful scene. Now, with that scene in your mind, here's what Haggai does in his sermon. He takes up his first point and he talks about the temple that was passed. Look in verse 3. He says, Who is left among you that saw this house, this temple, in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? So Haggai wasn't the only old man standing on that site on that day. There were other old men there who were less than impressed with the construction of this new temple. Uh, these men would have been teenagers. They would have been uh, in their early 20s when the first temple was destroyed. Now they're in their 80s, they're in their 90s, and they're not happy. And Haggai addresses them, and he says, Who is left among you who saw this house in her first glory? He says, who, who saw, who remembers Solomon's temple? That's what he's saying. Who remembers Solomon's temple? And, uh, you know, he already knows what, uh, what they think now of this new temple. Notice he says, how do you see it now? He says, who remembers Solomon's temple and how do you see it now? How do you see the temple now? 
And he knows already what they're thinking. How does he know? Because if you go back to the book of Ezra, when the foundation of the temple was laid, the old men wept and the young people rejoiced. Why did the old men weep? Because the new temple was not going to be anything like the old temple. You see, Solomon was a great king. He was, uh, he was reigning during a time of economic prosperity. He was living during a time of uh, military security, political stability. And so he had an advantage over Zerubbabel and the people of, of Haggai's day. He had wealth in abundance. And you know that the first temple was one of the wonders of the world. You know, it was covered in gold and silver and, and all kinds of ornamentation. And yet they're building this second temple, which in comparison to the first looks like a shack. You know, I remember when I was a young draftsman and I uh, thought I'd, you know, try my hand at drawing building extensions. I don't know if, uh, if uh, Alistair's tried any of that. He hasn't done any of these ways, man. But I remember a planning officer calling me up from Belfast City Council and, and, and reading me the RAN Act down the phone and telling me that, that he'd seen chicken coops better, built better than my uh, extension. And I remember feeling very disheartened uh, about that uh, as a young draftsman. But here's essentially what happens here. These old men come and they say, this isn't a temple. This is a chicken coop. You know, this isn't how a temple should look. A temple should be a grand structure. A temple should have gold and silver. A temple should impress people. And and here's what they're saying. The temple of Zerubbabel's day doesn't hold a candle to the temple of Solomon's day. Well, as I said, Solomon had great wealth. Zerubbabel, not so much. He and the others had returned from Persia with little more than the shirts on their back and what little money the Persian king had been willing to grant them for this project. It was comparing chalk and cheese. Solomon and Zerubbabel was like comparing apples with oranges. So as the nation gathered around this area on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles and the priests were going through the motions of ceremony one last time, pouring the water from the spring of Gion onto a building site, Through their salty tears, the elderly could be heard complaining. And so Haggai says, Who is among you that saw this house in her first glory? How do you see it now? And notice what they answered at the end of verse 3. Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? They said it is as nothing. Now here's what I want you to get tonight. And this is what Haggai is going to drive at. Anytime you attempt to try something for God, there's always somebody somewhere who's got something negative to say about it. There's always somebody. Somebody get ready with a criticism. Somebody thinks they got a better plan. Somebody thinks, you know, the eldership is taking leave of their senses or the oversight haven't got a clue what they're doing. And uh, these criticisms are fired in the direction of those who are trying to attempt something. But here's the thing. You know, you shouldn't allow that to discourage you. And that's where we, that's where we go on in verses 4 and 5. Because how he spoke of the temple that was past, he now addresses the temple that was present. Verses 4 and 5. He says to Zerubbabel, who's leading this project, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord. And be strong, O Joshua, high priest, son of Josedek. And be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work. For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. 
according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you. Fear ye not. So you gotta, you got to feel something for these men, Sherubabal, Joshua, the people who are working on this project. You know, they're standing there, they're trying to do their best, and these old people are whining and crying and getting on and complaining and criticizing and saying, you know, you're wasting your time, you're never going to reproduce Solomon's temple. And they're really disheartening, him, or disheartening them. They were undermining the work with their criticism. And really, these are people who should have known better. You know, can I say this to those of us uh, who, are, who are at the latter end of, our, uh, of the age scale? You know, we've got to be careful about discouraging our young people. We, we need to try and encourage them along the way. You know, they may not do everything like we would have done it. But that doesn't mean to say it's wrong or it's, or it's not as good. And sometimes we have to step back and say, well, you know what? Maybe the young people have a good idea here. Or maybe that young person has come up with something. And we've got to be willing sometimes to just swallow our pride and, and accept that, you know, from one generation to another, uh, God may use people in different ways. But notice in verse 4, three times God tells these men uh, and the people to be strong. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all ye people of the land. He says, take heart. Have courage. You know, uh, you know that's a tremendous encouragement to them. I wonder, do you need that encouragement tonight? Maybe you're weary in the work of the Lord. Very often, the burden of church life often falls on a few faithful shoulders. You know, as somebody says, it's like a football match where, you know, you have 22 men in need of exercise watching a ball by 22,000 men, uh, or 22,000 men who are not in need of exercise watching, <laughs> kicking a ball. Forget that. Anyway, uh, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9. I'll get that right in bed tonight. Uh, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9. It's 22, 22 men who are not in need of exercise, kicking a ball, being watched by 22,000 people who are in need of exercise. See, I knew I'd get there in the end. <laughs> I've lost the illustration. Anyway, uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. What does Paul say? And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. You know, I absolutely believe that about our church. I believe if we just keep plugging away and plugging away and plugging away, if we don't grow weary and well-doing, you know, uh, if we keep on uh, pushing and pushing and, and being what we ought to be, eventually we shall reap. Eventually we shall reap and the Lord will bless it. And you know, maybe you're here tonight and, you, and you're that person who's weary and well-doing. Well, if you are weary and well-doing, the Lord says, be strong. And if you're doing what he's called you to do, he tells us in verse, uh, verse 4, I am with you. I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. And notice at the end of verse 5, he says to them, fear ye not. Who were they afraid of? Why would the Lord tell them, fear ye not? They didn't have any enemies at this point. Certainly, Haggai doesn't mention any threats from any quarter. So why is the Lord saying to them, fear ye not? Well, here's the thing. You know, the word fear can mean just that. It can mean uh, to be in fear of an enemy. But it also, in Hebrew, may speak of honoring or revering someone. 
And understand in Middle Eastern culture, elders were highly revered. They were held in the highest of regard. Their word was gospel. Very often they were listened to and they were heeded. So when the old generation stood by and they watched the work and they complained and they said, compared to the old temple, this is is nothing. God is saying to them, don't listen to the critics. Don't listen to those old people. Fear you not. Don't give ear to their complaints. Don't worry about the temple that is present. And then he speaks to them about the temple that is future. Look in verse 6. He says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it's a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. In this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, at some point, according to verse 6, in the future, the kingdoms of men are going to be shaken. And then what? We read, the desire of all nations shall come. The desire of all nations is a title for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a messianic uh, title. You might say, oh, wait a minute, Pastor. If you're talking about Jesus here, the nations don't desire Jesus. That's true. But they desire what Jesus will bring when he comes. Because when he comes, he will bring peace. He will bring prosperity to the earth. And so uh, here's what the encouragement. He says, in a little while, the earth is going to be shaken. The Messiah is going to come. And I will fill this house, this place, with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Then he reminds them who ultimately owns the silver and the gold. He says, the gold is mine. The silver is mine, saith the Lord. He says, it doesn't belong to Solomon. Don't you worry about what Solomon had. If I wanted you to have gold and silver, I could give you gold and silver. Do you think I'm sitting in the heavens as a pauper? I can give you anything that I want to give you. I've just chosen not to give you that same resource at this time. And then, I, I love verse 8. You know, when he, when he says that the silver is mine, the gold is mine. Because very often we limit the work of God because of our few resources. And God says, it's all mine anyhow. Then in verse 9, he tells them, The glory of this latter house, of the second temple, shall be greater than the former, saith the Lord of hosts. There's there's something about this temple that is going to be superior to the temple that Solomon built that was destroyed in totality. What was it? Well, he says that that, uh, in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. And uh, he tells them that he will fill this house with his glory. So the Lord Jesus, when he comes, what temple does he visit? He doesn't visit Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. He visits Zerubbabel's temple. He walks onto the courtyard of the temple of Herod's day. Now Herod expanded that temple 83 years in total. It took for him to expand and extend it and to beautify it and and all the rest of it. And it was very different by the time the Lord got here from what it would have looked at the time of Zerubbabel. But essentially Herod did not build a new temple. He extended Zerubbabel's temple. And here comes the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the figure of glory. And he steps onto the courtyard of that temple. 
And so the Lord is saying to them, look, have an eye to the future. Your temple might not have the gold and the silver and all the, uh, all the bells and whistles of Solomon's temple, but I'll tell you what it's going to have. It's going to have the desire of all nations walking on its floors. Now, for a Jewish person, that is tremendously encouraging. So that's sermon number two. He ends by encouraging them with their very own little blessed hope. Not little blessed hope, but great blessed hope. Then sermon number three, he says, consider your heart. Verses 10 through 19, we'll uh, not take time to read all of that, but uh, Paul's, Paul begins first, or sorry, not Paul, Haggai begins by talking about past problems. So if you notice, it's the, in uh, verse 10, it's the 4 and 20th day of the month. And, uh, and, and uh, in that respect, the, this third sermon is now given. And uh, essentially what he, what he does in verses 10 to 17 is he rebukes uh, the priests. Uh, and what was happening is the priests were going through the ceremonies and the rituals of the law, but their hearts weren't right with God. And so he, he poses two questions. And they're really a reverse side, one of the other. The first question is simply this. If a clean thing touches an unclean thing, does the unclean thi- is the unclean thing purified? No. If a clean thing touches an unclean thing, is the unclean thing purified? No, it's not. And then he reverses the question, and he says this. If an unclean thing touches a clean thing, is the clean thing contaminated? Yes, it is. Now, what was his point? His point was simply this. Holy rites don't make holy hearts. Just because you're doing something that is sanctioned by the law, just because you're doing something that God has commanded you to do and you're going through the motions of ritual and ceremony, that doesn't make your heart right. And he says the opposite actually is true. Your heart being not right actually contaminates the ceremonies and the rituals. And again, that's a real, real lesson for us, isn't it? Because we can come into church and, and we, can, we can sing our hymns and pray our prayers and offer our praise and our worship and all the rest of it. But if our hearts are not right with God, those things don't make us right with God. And if our hearts are out of step with the Lord, well, guess what happens? Our worship becomes tainted. Our service is infected. And the Lord will not receive it. Now, the consequence of that was that that the sin in their past had resulted in the removal of God's blessing. Notice in verse 16 and 17. Since those days were, those days of sin, when one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but ten. When one came to the press fat to draw out fifty vessels out of the press, there were but twenty. I smote you with blasting and with mildew and with hail in all the labors of your hands, yet ye turned not to me, saith the Lord. So God says, your past economic downturn, the failure of your harvest, that was all down to your sin. It was a consequence of your sin. That was your past problem. Now, there are future uh, promises then that the Lord wants to draw to their attention. Look at verse 18. Consider now, there's that word consider again. Consider now from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. 
Is the seed yet in the barn? Yea, as yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree hath not brought forth. From this day will I bless you. Now, it's the 24th day, uh, 24th day of the ninth month, and uh, that's harvest time. And yet they still had seen no marked improvement in events. You know, they weren't enjoying a bumper harvest. They weren't any better off than what they had been in the previous years when they were in sin. And so every year they had been planting their crops. Every year the harvest had been a disappointment. And God says, even now as you continue this work, the harvest has been a disappointment to you. Uh, you look at the harvest and what? Is there seed in the barn? No. Everything is, is as it was. And nothing has changed. So three months they've been working on this temple by this point, And their harvest yield is as low as it ever was. Now here's the thing. Sometimes when people get right with God, they expect everything to fall into place in their lives. They expect everything to be sorted out there and then from day one. But it doesn't always work that way. You see, there are consequences for our past behaviors. And, uh, you know, a a good example of that, I think, would be uh, brothers that I know. I know two brothers who were saved out of drug addiction, both of whom very committed Christians, both of whom eagerly serving the Lord, both of whom struggling with a battle against hepatitis B. Why have they got this health issue? Because of their drugs use in the past. There's a consequence there. So here the people of Judah looked to their barns. It was the month of November. They had just taken in the olive harvest. The yield was down just as before. And it's because of their past sins. Disappointed with that, they may have been ready to down tools and said, well, you know what? We've been working hard at this for three, three months. We've been harv- trying to get on with our farming and that hasn't paid off now. Let's forget the temple and get back to the farming. But Haggai reminded them that although the past had its repercussions, the future, if they remained faithful, would know its blessings. Notice what God says in verse 19, from this day I will bless you. The next harvest would be, biz- would be different. Next year the barns would be full. All right, fourth sermon. Sermon number four, consider your part. Look in verses 20 through 23 of chapter 2. It says, Again the word of the Lord came unto Haggai in the four and twentieth day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, And the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and will make thee as, notice this word, a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. So first of all, in this last sermon, the prophet uh, prophesies the ruination of Judah's enemies. And that's been a common theme all the way through these minor prophets. One after another has said much the same thing. The Jews are back in their land, and though they're rebuilding their temple, even at this point, they're still under the control of the Persians. They still had to appeal to King Artaxerxes 
to, to continue the building of the temple. And so God says to them, look, it's not always going to be like this. There's coming a day when I will rid the land of your enemies. But then I want you to see that he speaks to them about the reign of God's Son. And that's at the start of verse 23. In that day, remember that's a prophetic term. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and will make thee as a signet. Now, let me give you some background here. Zerubbabel was the governor of Judah, of Jerusalem, sorry, and uh, his family history was really quite prestigious. He was of the household of David. He was a grandson of the penultimate king of Judah, uh, King Jeconiah, or, or uh, Coniah, as he's sometimes referred to. And I tell you that in order that we may get this background information and understand what God is saying to this man. Look in Jeremiah chapter 22 for a moment. Jeremiah chapter 22. I want to bring you to God's condemnation of this penultimate king of Judah, King Jeconiah, who ends up being taken into exile in Babylon for his sins. And in verse 24 of, Je- of Jeremiah chapter 22, we read this. As I live, saith the Lord, though Keniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet, notice there's that word again, were the signet upon my right hand, yet would I pluck thee thence. And I will give thee into the hand of them that seek thy life, and into the hand of them whose face thou fearest, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. Now, what is a signet? The signet is the seal of a king. And so God is saying here that to this point, the kings of Judah have been, uh, have been operating with his blessing, his imprimatur. He was saying, uh, you, you have been ministering or serving with my authority, but at this point, I'm withdrawing my authority. He says, you were the signet upon my right hand, yet would I pluck thee hence. He says, I'm going to take away the authority, and I'm giving it to someone else, to Nebuchadnezzar in this instance. Now, there was worse to come. Look at verse 30 of that chapter, Jeremiah 22. Thus saith the Lord, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Now that is a damning statement because God is saying, now there will be no more kings from the line of Judah. That's, that is not just bad news for Jeconiah, it's bad news for the whole world because Christ was to come through the line of Judah. And so the Lord is saying, you know what? I've got to the point where I'm not even going to have the Messiah come. He's not coming. There's going to be no kings coming through your line. No more kings. That's the end of the line for David's family. But now you go back to Haggai and God says to Zerubbabel, I will make thee as a signet. Now, Zerubbabel was a governor of Jerusalem. He never became a king. He was never a king. But in making him a signet, God was reversing the curse that he placed upon Jeconiah and restoring the Davidic line. Now, let's go to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. 
And let's read a little bit of the lineage of Christ. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 12. It says, And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah, that's the man we've just read about in Jeremiah, begat Saltiel, Saltiel begat Serubabel, and Serubabel begat Abihud, and Abihud begat Eliakim. In other words, the line was picked up again with Serubabel. And so his name was placed right there in the line of Christ. You talk about a word of encouragement. You talk a word of, about a word of blessing. First of all, the Lord says to him, listen, this temple you're building, it may look like a chicken coop, but one day the Messiah is going to walk upon it. And I'll tell you something else. That curse that I put upon your family, I'm lifting it and I'm slotting your name into the messianic line. Whew, talk about a blessing for a person. What a, what a tremendous encouragement. You know, we've went through a lot of these minor prophets and quite frankly, a lot of their messages were discouraging, weren't they? There was judgment and judgment and judgment and judgment and judgment. Now we've got a prophet who comes along and says, no, we're done with that. The Messiah's coming. And what's more, he's coming through your line, Zerubbabel. God's going to honor you for your work. And that's where we end in the last part of this sermon. He talks about the, uh, the reinforcement of God's call. Look at verse uh, 23 again in the very last bit of that verse. He says, I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. And we see that throughout Scripture. Individuals who are chosen by God for particular tasks and purposes. You think how God brought Moses out of the Nile and placed him within Pharaoh's court so that years later, God again would bring Moses back into the land of Egypt and lead the nation of Israel out in the Exodus. You think about how God lifted Gideon out of the wine press and used him to defeat the Midianites. You think about how God exalted David in the eyes of the people over King Saul and at the proper time established him as the king of Israel. You think about how God used the prophets of old Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Daniel, Jonah, uh, and all the others to bring his word before kings in Jerusalem and foreign lands. You think in the New Testament even how God chose Paul to bring the gospel to the Gentile nations. What a privilege to this weary, weary servant of the Lord. He says to him, the work that you're doing is going to be honored by the Messiah in person one day. And you're lying is the line that the Messiah is coming from. And I want you to know that's because I chose you. I handpicked you to do this particular task. <coughs> so what a challenge to us to consider our ways, to give the Lord first place in our lives, to know that there are consequences for sin, even in the life of believers, but the special blessings come to those who consecrate themselves to him. And that, my friends, is the book of Haggai. May the Lord bless you.